If we were to just read that verse, we might walk away just thinking that, you know, Isaac was a man of tremendous faith who always followed the Lord and always lived according to God's plans and, and uh, never did things his own way. But as we are going to read this morning, there's so much more to that story. In fact, while Isaac's faith is rightly highlighted in the book of Hebrews, the story of Isaac's faith begins really with his attempting to go around the will of God. And it includes such shocking elements as secret plots and deceptive schemes and lies and threats of murder and all kinds of stuff. And what we really see is a complete lack of faith by not only Isaac, but everyone else involved in the entire story. So let's get right to it, because as the song says, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So let's, let's look at chapter 26, begin with verse 34, which begins to frame this entire event. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beri and Hittite, the Hittite, and, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now. It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, the older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered him and said, Here am I. Then he said, Behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats that I will make savory food for them, for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat of it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man and I am a smooth skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids on the goats, of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she gave the savory food of the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord, your God, brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him, and he said, the voice is Jacob's voice, 
But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. That his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his clothing. And he blessed him saying, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, my God, give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob. And Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly. And, and he said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing." And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren. And I have given to him as servants with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth. A better translation is away from the fatness of the earth. And of or away from the dew of heaven from above. But your sword shall live and you shall serve your brother and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and say, stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there, 
Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are a people who can gather together to read your word, to hear it read aloud, to be able to allow it to speak into our lives. And just as we have sung, we ask for you to speak to us, O Lord, through your word. Allow this word to transform our lives, to encourage us, but also to bring conviction where conviction is necessary, that we may be brought into compliance and to obedience to your word. Do this work for your glory. And for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1969, Frank Sinatra recorded what would become his signature song. The song was entitled, My Way. Some of you remember that song very well. Some of you are even wondering who Frank Sinatra is. <laughs> but you remember, those of you who remember that song, My Way, it was, a, it was a look back across a life, across the ups and downs of life, across the wins and the losses of life. And at the end, it was a defiant and even triumphant de declaration of this phrase, I did it my way. I believe that song could be the theme song for the passage that I just read for you this morning with one small change. I think every participant in this text could have sung that song, but they would have had to change the words slightly and sung this. I tried to do it my way. And the fact of the matter is, I think that song probably is pretty apropos for most of us in our lives, especially our lives of faith. We do try to do it, but we want to do it our way. Each of the characters in this story that I have just read to you display a remarkable lack of faith. As they attempt to manipulate and to scheme and to deceive and to force their own will upon the others in the story. In fact, as we dissect this episode, we will recognize that in this family, there are no heroes. There are none that we would want to exemplify and do as they have done. There are no examples that we are really encouraged to follow. Nevertheless... This story serves as a testimony that God's purposes for man and man's ultimate good will stand despite all of our failures and all of our selfish and ill-advised attempts to do things our own way. The story can be divided into four distinct parts, and, and, and each of these sections really throws the spotlight on one of the characters in the entire story. And, and so I, that's how I've kind of structured your outline this morning, and I want to draw your attention to it. Uh, we want to begin with the first one. We want to begin with Isaac, uh, who in chapter 27, we get the majority of, of him. And the first thing that I want you to know is that the text reveals to us Isaac's secret plan. Isaac's secret plan. The first thing that we need to know about Isaac is that the text tells us that he's old. Doesn't tell us how old. Just tells us that he's old. Most scholars have kind of done a little math and come back and looked at it, and many of them land and believe that Isaac was about 137 years old when this text takes place. What we also learn about Isaac is that with his age, he's also lost his eyesight. 
He, does, he cannot see. He is completely blind and unable to, to distinguish anything. The third thing that's a little less obvious but still there nonetheless is that the text seems to indicate that Isaac was bedridden. You learn this from the fact that when, when Jacob comes in to serve him his food, he asks him to rise so that he can eat. And the same happens when Esau comes in, rise up and eat. So it seems that he is suffering from some kind of long-term illness that keeps him from being mobile. Now, it is apparently all of those conditions together, the fact that he is of age and that he has gone blind and that he is suffering from some sort of uh, ailment that keeps him bedridden, that he says in verse 2, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Isaac is convinced that he's just about to die. And that's why he calls Esau. He calls Esau into his tent because he says, Look, I don't feel good. I'm old. I can't see. I don't have much time left. Do you know what would make me feel good, Esau, if you'd go out there and you'd kill some of that wild game that you always go hunt? Get your quiver, get your bow, go out and kill some of that. Prepare me some of that great stew that you make. I love that stuff. If you'd fix that and bring that back to me, it would make me feel so good. I, that, would be, that would be a blessing. And then notice verse 4. I want you to do that so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, you recognize that there's a sense of urgency in Isaac's command. He, he, he determines that certain things need to happen. They need to happen quickly. He believes that his death is imminent. Here's the interesting thing. If he is 137 years old, as most scholars propose, you realize that according to Genesis chapter 35, you know how long he actually lived? 180. He still had 43 more years of living to be done. Nevertheless, he believes he truly believes that he's about to die, which is why he sets up this meeting with Esau. Now, he brings Esau in, and there's a couple of things that I want you to note about this. First of all, we don't read that Isaac consulted God about this meeting. We don't, we, he certainly didn't consult Rebekah. He didn't call Jacob into the tent, too. No, this was a secretive meeting that Isaac simply wanted with his son Esau. And the reason why it was secretive is because he had developed a plan. He had something that he wanted to do. He wanted to pass his blessing on to Esau. But why was he being so secretive about it? In most cases, when blessings like this were passed off from one generation to the next, it was an open-air affair where everyone in the family was invited to participate and to observe. Why was this being done so secretively? Well, you'll remember back a few weeks ago when we looked at the oracle that God had given concerning both Esau and Jacob before they were even born, God told Rebekah in chapter 25, verse 23, he says, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It is the last line of that oracle that God gives that tells us what's going to happen with these two twins. These, Esau was born first and Jacob was born second. What that means is according to the oracle is that Jacob would ultimately be the one who would receive the blessing and Esau would be the one who would serve Jacob. But as we also read a few weeks ago and as we continue to see in our text here, Esau has become Isaac's favorite Isaac had a taste for wild game, and Esau was a hunter. It was a match made in heaven, right? So Esau goes and kills the game. He feeds his father. They just had a great love relationship with one another. He had Esau was red-skinned and hairy and of the field, and that's just right up Isaac's alley, and he loved him. But 
But Jacob was Rebecca's favorite. He liked to hang out around the tents with his mom. And you get the sense that this oracle that God had given back in chapter 25 really served to split the family, to divide them into two camps with, with Isaac and Esau on one side and Rebekah and Jacob on the other. Back here in chapter 27, Isaac thinks he's about to die. So he secretly calls Esau, his favorite son, into his tent and he declares his intention. In spite of the oracle given by God before his sons had even been born, Isaac intended to pass on the blessing that his father Abraham had given him onto Esau, not Jacob. Isaac intended to do things his way. He was planning to go about it his way, not God's way. God had declared what would happen. But Isaac decided to go a different direction. And the only verdict that can be passed upon Isaac's willful attempt to do things his way is that he is not only physically blind, but here he's spiritually blind as well. Isaac subordinated God's will to his own desires, and certainly that amounts to a lack of faith. That's the first section of this text that we ought to note. But notice what happens next. The second point on your outline this morning turns the spotlight to Rebecca, and there we see her deceptive scheme. Rebecca's deceptive scheme. Isaac may have thought that his plan to bless Esau was going to remain a secret, but Rebecca overheard everything he said. Maybe he was talking loud. We don't know. My guess is as soon as Rebecca saw Esau go into Isaac's tent, her tentacles went up, and she immediately went where she could listen in on everything that was being said. What, as soon as she heard Isaac's secretive plan, Rebecca put her own deceptive scheme in place to counter it. She calls Jacob, and she gets him into her tent, and she decides that she wants to take advantage of her aging husband's disability. She tells Jacob to bring her two kid goats from which she would make stew. Rebecca was pretty confident in her own ability to cook, too. She said, Esau may be the one who fixes stew that he likes all the time, but I'm pretty sure, I've been around that man for a long time, I'm pretty sure you bring me some goat meat, and I know how to season it up just right, I'll feed him that. He ain't going to be able to tell the difference between that and venison. I guarantee it. So Rebecca planned to deceive her own husband. Jacob, though, he... He pushes back. He says, but what about the fact that Esau is hairy and, and, and I'm, so, I'm smooth-skinned? Rebecca says, don't worry about that. I got that taken care of too. We're going to take some of the skin of that goat and we're going to put it up on the back of your hands and then we'll take some more of the skin of that goat and we'll put it on the back of your neck. And then if that's not enough, then we'll take and put, put some Esau's clothes on you. And that way when you get close to him, you're going to smell just like Esau. He ain't going to be able to see you, but he, you're, going to, you're going to feel like him and you're going to smell like him. By the way, Esau had to be a hairy dude <laughs> to have goat for it to feel like goat to feel like him. He must have been a hairy man. Some have wondered if Jacob initially objected to his mother's instructions because he was feeling guilty about deceiving his own man. But you know what? A closer look at this text actually reveals that his objections were not because he was bothered by the deception. His objections because he was bothered by getting caught. Look at verse 12. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to him to be a deceiver. And listen, I shall bring a curse on myself 
and not a blessing. That's a key verse. He was concerned about bringing a curse on himself, not a blessing. Rebecca's response is quite telling. She says, let your curse be on me. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Now, what led Rebecca to do such a thing as that? Well, we know that Esau was already out hunting game, and so the clock's ticking. She knows it's probably not going to be long. He's going to have gotten the game and, and then come back and cook some of that stew to take in to Isaac. And so she felt there was a sense of urgency on her part. And he would be back and Isaac would give his blessing to Esau and not to Jacob. Furthermore, Rebekah knew what God had said. She knew that Jacob's line was the one through whom God had destined the Abrahamic promise to be fulfilled. Not Esau's line. But now Isaac had committed to give his blessing to Esau and not Jacob. So what was a believing mother supposed to do? What was she supposed to do? Just sit back and let this happen? Well, here we see is where Rebecca's faith actually failed. You see, the same God who could make such great and grand promises to Abraham to begin with, the same God who had not only given that promise, but had promised that it would be carried out from generation to generation, well, he was also surely able to carry out his promise even in this scenario too. But Rebecca fell to the temptation of believing that God needed her help. God needed her to, to, to deceive her husband and to carry this plan out in order to make sure that God's will was done. I like what Ian DeGuid has written in his commentary on this passage. He says, when we worry and fret and try desperately to control our own futures, we are writing God out of the picture completely. We have forgotten that God is the one who writes our testimonies as well as those of our spouses, our friends, and our children. He doesn't need our help. God will do what he has promised. So a faith-filled response to Isaac's secretive plan was not to be found in Rebekah's deceptive scheme. Rather, she should have at least gone to her husband and reminded him of God's oracle and begged of him to do things the right way. She should have gone to God in prayer and taken the whole matter to him. But instead, she took it into her own hands and decided to do for God what God did not ask her to do. But then let's move on in the text because next we come to Jacob. The light begins to shine on Jacob and there we see Jacob's blasphemous lie. Jacob's blasphemous lie. If we thought Jacob was just simply a pawn of his mother, an unwilling manipulated captive to her scheme, then his actions are going to prove us wrong. But it's not just his actions that are going to prove us wrong. I want you to think about this. If, as I mentioned earlier, if it is true that Isaac was 137 years old. When this episode occurred, do you know how old that makes Jacob? 77. He and his brother were born when Isaac was 60 years old. Do the math. 137 minus 60 is 77. What that means is, is that Jacob was not some teenager that was being manipulated by his mother. He was not some young kid who just had to do what was being said. No, he's a full-grown man. He's a man of 77 years. What that tells us is that Jacob goes along with Rebecca's deceptive scheme, not, not because he was being manipulated, but rather because he didn't trust that God could do what God had said he would do any more than his mother did. 
In fact, Jacob's already demonstrated the fact that he didn't trust that God could give to him what God had promised. Back in chapter 25, he deceived Esau, you remember? He, he had Esau when, he, when Esau came in from hunting and he was all give out from not being able to get anything all day. He was famished, he was hungry, and he was about to starve to death. That was, that was Jacob's opportunity. He took advantage. He was an opportunist to take advantage of, of his brother and he traded his brother a bowl of stew for his birthright. So Jacob's already demonstrated that he's an ambitious, self-serving, grasping, scheming opportunist who only cared about getting ahead. Nothing has changed by the time that we get to chapter 27. And so what we see is that Rebecca prepares this meal. Jacob enters his father's tent to take it to him. And Isaac wants to know who he is. Notice verse 19. He says, who are you? And notice how many lies just begin to start flowing from Jacob's lips. First of all, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Well, that's a lie. He was Isaac, the secondborn. Then he says, I've done just as you told me. Well, that was a lie. He did just as his mama told him. And then he says, please arise and eat of my game. That too was a lie. He wasn't eating of the game that he had killed. He was eating of his own father's goat. Now, Isaac still senses something's not right. He, Esau's back too soon. This, is, this has happened too quickly. And so Jacob attempts to dispel his his father's fears with another lie. And this one he came up with all on his own. Verse 20, Isaac wants to know how Esau got the game so quickly. Jacob responds, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Kent Hughes has called this nothing less than a bald face blasphemy. Why? because he implicates Almighty God in his own lie and deception. And right about here is where we expect that lightning bolt to come out of heaven, right? And to just zip right through the top of Isaac's tent and just burn Jacob up to a crisp like a potato chip right there in the middle. But it doesn't. And you know why? I'm glad that it doesn't. Because it reminds me once again that God's mercy and God's grace are greater than our sin. It reminds me that God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It reminds me of the fact of God's loving kindness towards sinners like Jacob and towards sinners like me. But then I want you to notice just some of y'all know that I struggle with claustrophobia at times. I get off when it gets there. I want you to notice the claustrophobic intimacy that is here in this text, and it just makes me want to go nuts. Isaac is still not convinced that this one talking to him is actually his son Esau. And so he says, come closer. I want to feel you. And so he touches and runs his hands over his hands, and he feels like Esau. And then he, he eats of the stew. And apparently, Rebecca was really good at cooking because she deceived his senses of taste. And, and then he puts his hand on the back of his neck and he feels that goat skin on the back of his neck. And so the senses of touch are also deceived. And so now he's blind, but his senses are being deceived along with it. And then he... He gets a deep breath of the smell and he's, the aroma is that of Esau and his, 
his sense of smell is deceived. What we begin to recognize is that Jacob, Jacob has done everything he can to throw his father off. He had plenty of opportunities to come clean. He was asked more than once, who are you? More than once, he says, I'm Esau. And then in verse 27, he bends down and he kisses his father, which was a demonstration of love and affection and intimacy, something that those two did not actually share. And so even there, we see that all of that was a lie. And many people have pointed out that Jacob Jacob was just a hypocrite. He was pretending to be somebody that he was not. And what we know for certain is that such dishonesty and hypocrisy are the absolute opposites of living by faith. Jacob, like his father and like his mother, he went about doing things his own way, not God's way. Esau gets that, excuse me, Isaac gets that smell of Esau in his nose and he begins to believe. He suspends belief even though he recognizes it's Isaac's voice, but man, everything else that I see or that I can feel and smell and touch tells me it's Esau. And so he goes on in verse 27. He says, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. And so therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. You hear, in that is the blessing of, of fertility of the land. And then he says this, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. That was the blessing of political supremacy. And then he said this, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. This was the same blessing, if you recall, that was the, the blessing that God had given to Abraham back in chapter 12, verse 3, where he said almost those same words, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. But remember, this blessing has now been given to Jacob, but Isaac thought he was giving it to Esau. Unbeknownst to him at this point, he's actually conveying that blessing upon his younger son. And Jacob, he accepts that blessing, and no doubt he hightails it out of Isaac's tent just as soon as he could. And ironically, just before Esau comes in, we see that everything is about to change. In fact, note the last point on your outline. We see Esau's bitter defeat. Esau's bitter defeat. I don't know if you picked up on it or not. I mentioned it at the beginning. This entire passage is framed by a discussion of Esau marrying two Canaanite, two Hittite women. At the end of chapter 26, it describes the fact that he married these two women and that that marriage those marriages brought great grief to the minds of Isaac and Rebekah. At the end of chapter 27, Rebekah brings that marriage up again and says, if my son, if my son Jacob does that, there's, there's no sense in us even going further. So it's interesting to me that this entire passage is bookended by a reference to Esau's marriage to two Hittite women, two Canaanites. And the reason that I believe that that happens is because... Esau, by doing that, demonstrated how little he cared about the real promises and the real blessings of the promises that, that were his by birth order to have received. You remember he already cared very little about his birthright, so little, in fact, that he traded it for a bowl of stew. Well, here he's, he shows how little he cares about the blessing 
that would have been his to have had by the fact that he marries outside of his people. He marries Canaanites rather than those of his own kinship. What's evident, though, and the reason why I think this is there is so that it helps us, it helps us should we feel some sympathy toward him. Because you might just read this story and you really begin to feel sorry for Esau. After all, he had terrible timing, didn't he? If he had just gotten there 10 minutes earlier, maybe he would have been able to stop what was taking place in Isaac's tent. But scarcely had Jacob left before Esau comes in. And he's gone out and he's killed what he's got from the field and he's prepared his stew. And it's almost like you can see his chest just busting forth. He's so proud. He's got the meal. He's ready to go into his father's tent. And he says in verse 31, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. Big smile on his face. Everything changes though. Because immediately Isaac realizes something's wrong. He says, Who are you? Esau responds, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then notice what happens, verse 33. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly. And he said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? He realizes he has been deceived. He says, I ate all of it before you came. And I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed couple things I want you to note. You notice that he trembles exceedingly. Some have said that his his trembling was as a result of his his real anger at the fact that he had been deceived. I don't think that. I think the trembling that he experienced was because he recognized that the sovereign God of heaven had overridden his plans. He had intended to bless his oldest son, which was against the plan of God, but God had used everything that had happened and he still blessed the one that God had said. He blessed his younger son and he realized it and he realized that he had come into the presence of a holy and sovereign God and it caused him to shake. That's what I believe. Secondly, notice this, notice the irrevocability of the blessing. There was no taking back what had occurred. Though Isaac had been deceived, his blessing had been given to Jacob. And and with Jacob, it would remain. And then thirdly, notice this. Notice the faith of Isaac. He said, I have blessed Jacob, and indeed, he shall be blessed. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how can we talk about the faith of Isaac here? Didn't he go around the will of God? Wasn't he doing everything that he shouldn't have been doing? That's right. How is that faith then? Well, as Ian DeGood has written, the answer to that is that although Isaac's faith was mistaken in its direction, it was solid in its heart. Although he was wrong in the one he sought to bless, Isaac was profoundly right in believing that there was a blessing to be transmitted. He believed God that one day the promise given to Abraham would bear fruit in the lives of his descendants. And I believe, as I said before, Isaac also recognized that once his mistake was exposed and once the deception that he had had undergone by the hands of Jacob, he realized that his intentions had been exposed and that he had been defeated by the sovereignty of God. And of course, Esau was devastated. He begs for a blessing. He begs and begs and cries for a blessing. And finally, he gets one. The ESV translates it this way, verse 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. 
Esau's blessing was really just the opposite of Isaac's. And he was incensed with anger. And he began to plot how he was going to kill his brother once his father had died. What we see then is that Rebekah steps in, sends Jacob away. And by the way, Jacob goes away. And that mother who loved her son so much to send him away never laid eyes on him again. And what you begin to see is that everybody in this text wanted to do things their own way and every single one of them paid dearly for doing it. As I mentioned at the outset, no one in this family comes across as an example of that we would want to follow. In fact, the sins of all the participants in this drama are very evident and they never paid off. They never brought them what they hoped they would. Yet, what this passage does do, though, is draw us to the necessity of faith in God. You see, each person tried to do things their own way. They tried to plot, scheme, manipulate, pursue their own path. But this passage reminds us that God is sovereign and he will not be defeated by our rebelliousness, nor does he need our deception to accomplish his will. And that's what leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning. Because I believe this passage is drawing us to faith and it's drawing us into an understanding of what faith ought to do with our actions and how it ought to motivate us. And so because that's the case, what we recognize is that God graciously accomplishes his sovereign plan apart from human manipulations so that our faith must rest in him and not in our own plans and our own schemes. You will never come away from a place in the text. You will never come away from a spot where you recognize that God is telling you to rely on your own ingenuity and to rely on your own scheming and to rely on some kind of shortcut that will bring you. No, that is not how God works. What he says is, is I will give you my promise and you can be assured that I will always follow through with everything that I have done. He did it here. Even in spite of, in spite of Isaac's attempts to go around God's will, in spite of Rebekah's deception, in spite of Jacob's blasphemous lie, and in spite of Esau's murderous plot, God still achieved what he planned to achieve. The Gewood says this, he brought his promised redeemer not from picture-perfect parentage, but from the offspring of a long line of sinners. You know, when I was rereading this passage late this week, it was actually early, toward the end of the very this week, I was struck by the fact that the opposition that Jacob gave to his mother regarding her deceptive scheme was really based upon the fact of his fear that if his deception was found out, that he would receive a curse and not a blessing. And what stopped me in my tracks is when I read that and recognized that's exactly what Jacob deserved. He deserved a curse, not a blessing. Every single one of us deserved the same thing. We deserve God's curse, not his blessing. Now his mother pushed back and said, let your curse be upon me, which was, to be honest, a silly thing for her to say because there was no way that the curse could ever be upon her. And as a matter of fact, at the very end of the text, she's not taking responsibility for anything. But you know what? Jesus Christ came and said, I will take your curse upon me. 
the one who was infinitely worthy of praise and blessing instead became a curse in my place and in your place so that we might receive the ultimate blessing that God had given to Abraham who said, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he caused it to happen through Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross where there he took on my sin and your sin so that we might be set free from the curse. And that is why God calls us to faith in Him. He calls us to faith in Christ, not in ourselves, not in our own scheming. No amount of work and scheming and, and clawing and deception could you ever engage in that would ever put you before a holy God and find you being blessed. No, God has said the only way, God's only way is by faith in His Son. So stop trusting in yourself. Stop going about things your own way and instead surrender yourself to do it God's way. Put your full faith in Jesus and experience his grace and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.